0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your good news. I pray that you again would speak to our hearts, that you would open our hearts to your word for us, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would, give us, uh, that you would give us bread, that you would feed us with your truth and with your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, a note before I begin my sermon, um, I just want to acknowledge that tomorrow is MLK Day, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And um, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, is a modern prophet. He was calling the people of God, the church, America as well, but specifically, the church and the people of God to recognize the full dignity and worth of all people. And his work was absolutely a powerful and redemptive work of the Holy Spirit. That said, I am not going to be talking about that in the sermon at all today. We Anglicans, if you're new to Anglicanism, you may not know this, but we use something called the lectionary. So we are given certain texts to preach on and uh, sometimes I really love that as a preacher. Sometimes that's really hard as a preacher, which is exactly the point, is that the lectionary keeps you from preaching on your five favorite verses over and over again. And that, um, it also keeps us on the same page with all other ACNA churches that are, we're literally doing the same scriptures. It also, uh, if you follow the lectionary, over a course of two years, you, you cover the whole scripture. So... Sometimes the lectionary tracks almost eerily with world events. There was about six months last year where I felt like the New York Times must be reading the Anglican lectionary, like it was following. And I don't know if you guys remember, but um, right after the really horrific events in Charlottesville where white supremacists took over the town, the next week the lectionary passage we were given was about Jesus tearing down the walls between ethnicities. It just happened to be what the text was. So we preached on race and on racial justice. So um, to faithfully exegete and deal with this week's text without doing violence, it would have been a big stretch to try to fit in MLK. So I didn't. But I just want to acknowledge that that's happening. And I hope, because we are believers, that we will pause and remember that day. And remember MLK and his work tomorrow in prayers of gratitude. And also, we are going to be watching a speech as a family. So, and there's also tons in our community to do. So, I just want to acknowledge that, and of course, when the scripture raises issues of justice or poverty or race, we will preach on that. But today it doesn't so much. So, saying that, now I'm going to move on to our continuing series on epiphany. And I'm going to start with Harry Potter. I'm a big fan of Harry Potter. And for those of you who have read the Harry Potter series, you know that Harry doesn't begin the series, that he doesn't begin the books, with um, a full understanding of his identity. He doesn't totally know who he is yet. The first books begin with these hints that he's not an ordinary boy. But he doesn't know who he is and a lot of the time he does seem ordinary. He's mostly kind of an average boy but then something strange will happen like he'll be able to talk to a snake and have a conversation with a snake and Harry himself is not really sure what to do with that. And eventually this, this guy shows up, Hagrid, who's amazing and he um, tells Harry, Harry finds out that he's a wizard. But even then... He doesn't fully realize who he is. He doesn't fully know his identity, that he's this famous chosen boy that is, de- that is the defeater of evil, that is made in many ways to defeat evil. And the whole seven-book series of Harry Potter could be read as Harry coming to understand and own and embrace his true identity. So we continue to celebrate Epiphany this week, and um, my kids who, you know, have grown up kind of liturgical, they, this is normal for them. My eight-year-old this week was singing I'm Dreaming of a White Epiphany, which I just thought was great. Uh, it's exactly like the Christmas song, but just with epiphany. Um, inserted because there's not enough epiphany carols, which is true. There's not. Um, But when I was growing up, I would have not known that word. I didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition. I wouldn't have known the word epiphany. So when I would have heard the word epiphany, I would have thought of a scientist or some kind of like academic researcher, archaeologist or something, researching something, and suddenly saying, I had an epiphany like the light bulb that goes off in the cartoons right above someone's head, this, this sort of um, sudden revelation, this recognition suddenly of the truth of things. And this word we use, epiphany, it means the same thing. It's the same idea. We celebrate in the season the revelation, the dawning reality of who Jesus is as his true identity is revealed slowly to the world. Like Harry Potter, um, like the Harry Potter series, Jesus didn't come down with and become incarnated and write down the whole Nicene Creed and hand it to someone and say, this is what's real, and then, you know, he was out. That wasn't how this worked. He didn't come and immediately reveal the whole of his identity. His true identity was revealed organically over time to greater and greater numbers of people. And this morning, we begin with what the Scripture calls his first sign. And that's important. It's not, it is his first miracle, but not just a miracle. It's a sign. A sign points to something. A sign signifies something. And it pointed to his true identity. This is a story, a true story, unlike Harry Potter, unfortunately, but a true story of Jesus And we will look together at how it begins with joy and how it ends with joy. And then there's this part in the middle, and we'll look at all three. So first, it begins in joy. Tim Keller, in his sermon about this passage, points out that in many ways this is a weird first sign. If a political candidate, he says, is going to announce a campaign, or if a corporation is kind of rolling out a brand and they're having a big launch, they're really careful to construct and to craft to show exactly what they are about, to stay on message, to stay on brand. They want to show really clearly what their chief idea is, what their chief point is. And here is Jesus' very first sign, we're told. And there's no one dying. There's no one that needs to be raised from the dead. There's no one that's demon-possessed. There's no one that's sick and needs healing. There's no temple that needs to be cleansed of greed. There's no injustice that he's blotting out. And Tim Keller asked, why would Jesus decide that his quintessential first miracle his inaugural sign is to keep a party going why is his big rollout of his identity to provide really good high quality wine at a wedding feast and there's there's this role mentioned in this passage the it's um what we read this morning the translation it's called a steward a steward. In other translations, it's called a master of the banquet. It's kind of a master of ceremonies. And this, this word is only used here in the New Testament. So it's kind of a unique role, a unique job. And this guy's job, the steward, the master of the banquet, is to keep the party going, to make sure everyone's having fun, to make sure everyone's good and provided for. And Jesus is revealed as the one who keeps the party going. His true identity is the bringer of joy, of beauty, of delight and goodness. He is saying here in his very first sign, I have come to bring festival joy. And not just in eternity, not just in heaven, but on earth that we could begin to taste it, that we could taste and see that the Lord is good. Tim Keller says his very first miracle is to set everyone laughing. And I, w- I want to be careful here because I don't want to assign you some kind of weak, sentimental, like happy, clappy Christian faith where I'm telling you you have to go out and pretend that everything's okay and walk on the sunny side of the street We need deep lament. Things are not right with the world. And we need to weep and mourn and grieve and admit the truth of suffering, to look at darkness and name it without flinching. We need that. That is a spiritual practice. And for those of you who are always cheerful, who, as my friend Mary calls them, pathologically optimistic, you, you need to take up the practice of lament, of meeting God in grief, of allowing yourself to feel sadness. But for those of you who, like me, this is me, can dwell in melancholy, who can see the darkness of the world really clearly, who may be experiencing right now deep suffering we must remember that Jesus reveals a God who likes a good party, who likes celebration, who revels in pleasure and in good food and in good drink and in happiness and in joy, and that Jesus himself is worth celebrating. There's this band I like called Modest Mouse, and they have this great album title that's called Good News for People Who Love Bad News. And if you are that, if you're a person who loves bad news, it's not for any of you, good, or, good news or bad news people, that I'm telling you to ignore the bad news. But every time you look at the bad news, you need to discipline yourself to look at the good news more, to look at the good news as often or more often. Because joy and enjoyment, like lament, is a practice that we can take up And we must take up practices of truly tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, practicing celebration, enjoying things, laughing easily, especially at ourselves, remembering intentionally this joy-giving Savior, that this is good, good news that we have received. So this passage points to joy, to Jesus as the joy-giver. But it points to another joy because it ends in joy. And we'll see that in a little bit. But first, there's this middle. And this middle part is easy to miss and hard to understand in our culture. So I want to unpack it a bit. So for us, um, for any of you who've been married or hope to be married, we know that running out of wine in a wedding would be a little embarrassing. But We cannot imagine what this meant for this couple in scripture. At the time, wedding hospitality in this culture in this time was absolutely required. There would actually be legal implications. There could be legal implication. A lawsuit could be brought if there was an inadequate feast provided at a wedding. Or if someone brought an inadequate gift to a wedding. There could be legal implications of that which I, by the way, would have gotten sued many times by now. We have to remember that in this culture, running out of wine wasn't just what we would now consider kind of a party foul, but that it occurred in a shame-honor culture, a culture where failing to meet the obligations, the real social and legal obligations of hospitality brought utter shame on an entire family. This was catastrophic. And we see this in Mary's desperation. She knows that this is not just a breach of etiquette, but is a shameful act in her particular culture. And Mary, being both deeply compassionate and such a pragmatic lady, I love that about Mary, wants to rescue this family from shame. So she says, Jesus, do something. And it leads to this odd exchange because Mary says, They've run out of wine. And Jesus says, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So, first, I want to say that this phrase, woman, starting starting the sentence, woman, is not as harsh in the original language as it sounds in English. If someone says, If someone called me woman, there would be a conversation about that. And that's not what this, that's not exactly what's happening in this original language. That said, in the sense that what Jesus is saying here is not disrespectful, it's not mean, but it is formal, and it is a really unusual and strange way to address your mother. No one at this time would address their mom in this kind of language It's strange and then he comes to something even stranger he says my hour has not yet come when Jesus in the book of John talks about his hour and we see this several times in the book of John he's always referring to his death so Mary says they're running out of wine do something and Jesus essentially replies ma'am I am not yet ready to die. What? That is a strange response to what she just said. So what does that mean? They're running out of wine. Ma'am, I don't want to die yet. Okay. What, how do you explain what he's saying there? So Jesus, in this moment, I believe, what makes sense of this, is that he wasn't just thinking about removing the shame of this family caused by running out of wine. He was thinking of removing the shame of his bride, of the church. In our passage in Isaiah that we read this morning, to the people of God, it says, no longer will they, be, will they call you deserted. Or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah. It means, uh, as we read this morning, my delight is in her. My delight is in you. And your land will be Beulah, which means my delight is in, I'm sorry, which means married or bride. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married as a young man marries a young woman, so your builder, your maker will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. The scriptures are talking about the shame of God's people being called deserted and desolate in their shame, that being removed from them and God coming and marrying his people. This is a cosmic mystery. God marrying people. His people. There's a huge resistance right now in our particular cultural moment about the this, this shame of sin and the guilt of sin. There's a resistance to that concept of having shame and guilt and sin. In our culture, this is seen as repressive and cruel even. And, that, and the message of our culture is you are enough. You are perfect and beautiful and enough the way you are. And that you are um, lovely and exactly as you should be. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're either manipulating you or they're oppressive or they're selling you something, or they're jerks, and you shouldn't listen to them. And I want you to hear this. It's important that you each hear this. Christians believe, what we proclaim, is that each and all of you do have infinite and great dignity that cannot be taken away because of sin. You have beauty as an image-bearer of God that no sin or weakness could ever mar. That you even are glorious. That is what Scripture says. But also, also notice that Jesus only reveals himself as the joy-giver when to those and when those have run out of their own resources. Those who have failed, those who have brought shame on themselves and those around him. If these people had had enough wine on their own, if they were sufficient on their own, or if they would tried to cover up their lack or been self-defensive about it or blamed everybody else around them or made excuses or had not not admitted that they did not have enough, that they were not enough on their own. They could have never tasted the kind of wine that they could never have afforded on their own. Their very lack, their very place of shame is where Jesus met them. And it is only because they were not sufficient on their own that in their very place of shame, they found the best wine that they will ever have, that they found joy. It was in their weakness. It was in their lack. It was when their resources were insufficient that they encountered the joy giver. Notice here that that John, the, the gospel writer, kind of goes out of his way to mention that these big barrels, these vats that were filled with water were for ceremonial washing or purification, the cleansing of self purification in Jewish rites. These were Jewish ceremonies of self purification that you would do before a feast or celebration. And Jesus takes not just any water, but that water, that water that was used to self purify, to cleanse the people. He takes that water that could not be enough to wash people clean, to cleanse them of sin, and he makes that water wine. There is massive kinds of symbolism in that about his own death and about the Eucharist. But part of what we see here is that self-purification cannot take away our shame. That self improvement cannot take away our shame and our sin. What turned this ceremonial water to wine, what made religious ritual and religious practice into joy and celebration, is the work and life of Jesus. Jesus showed up and he changed this water of self purification into wine into a place of joy and abundance, even. What the world doesn't know, and what I wish the world could know, is that the bad news, that we have real and grave faults, that we on our own are not enough, are not sufficient, that we, each of us, are capable of all kinds of evil, that this is only bad news if we have to prove ourselves, if we have to purify ourselves, if we have to measure up on our own or be sufficient and strong on our own. But to admit our weakness, our lack, our shame even, would be terrible news without a God who loves us and delights in us. But if there is a God who delights in us, who even, as Scripture says, is crazy about us, Then admitting our failure, our sin, our shame, our weakness, that that is the very place, then, of freedom, that our lack in the hands of Jesus is the place of life, is the place of joy. We can be honest about who we are, the fullness of who we are, because we are beloved. And in our lack, we find that we are called bride, that we are called beloved, and that we're provided for, provided for in ways we could never provide for ourselves. Jesus meets us with joy, and he takes away our shame but to do that permanently, he knew he would have to go to the cross. He would have to die. He would take our debt. He would remove our shame by taking it upon himself. So when he brought joy to this wedding feast, when he said to Mary, My time has not yet come, he was thinking of his own death. He was thinking of what it would take to ready his bride. Why? Because he was thinking of a different wedding. He was thinking of his own wedding. See, the story begins with joy, and it ends with joy. And Jesus' public ministry begins with a wedding feast. And partly, this is because, as we said, Jesus is the true master of, of the banquet, he likes a good party. He is the master of ceremonies. But I also think his first sign is is at a wedding feast because all of history, all of time, ends in a wedding feast. This story points to the wedding feast that Jesus is preparing. We see this in the book of Revelation, in the last few pages of the whole Bible. We come upon this interesting scene then I'm going to read you from Revelation. It says Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says, I'm not yet ready to die because to permanently remove our shame, to prepare this wedding feast, to prepare his bride for marriage, he became the bridegroom that gave himself up for his bride. The story begins in joy, and it ends in joy, and in between there is the cross. And because of that, because of that work of the cross the end is laughter the end is joy we end in laughter this is our hope like julian of norwich said all shall be well all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well but that doesn't just happen by magic god doesn't just wave wand and make things well Tim Keller, again, talks about if, um, if if there's a debt or if there's shame, it doesn't just disappear. It can't just evaporate. Someone takes it on. So if I had, let's say, a $50 lamp in my house, which, as I said to the first service, I would never, because I have small kids that break everything. But let's say I have a really nice $50 lamp in my house, and you come over and you knock it over, and it shatters. There's, and you say, I'm so sorry. What, how can I make it up to you? There's three things that can be done in that moment. I can say, it was $50, pay up, and you replace the lamp for me. Or I could go without the lamp, be separated from it, But if I wanted to keep the lamp, if I wanted to not be separated from it, then either you have to pay, or I could say, I forgive you. It's okay, I forgive you. But then I'm going to need to shell out the 50 bucks to replace the lamp. The debt doesn't just go away. Either you pay for that lamp, or I pay for that lamp. But there's a real debt, and someone's going to pay it. And you can say, okay, that's like commerce, that's commercial, that's in the world of the material, but that doesn't work with, you know, something else or other things. But there are other places. Keller brings up, um, if someone tells a terrible rumor about you and ruins your reputation, you can either go to all the people that that person said and ruin that person's reputation and say... I hate that guy, he's a liar. Or you absorb that debt. You absorb that social shame and forgive that person and do not ruin their reputation. Shame and debt don't just disappear. They're either paid for, they're paid for if it's a debt, and they're, it's covered if it's shame. Shame has to be covered, This is what we see in Jesus hanging on the cross, uncovered, naked, taking our shame. Jesus took our lack. He took our shame. He took our failure to be able to make ourselves clean. He defeated the powers of death and evil and shame even at work in the world. And he made us into a pure and spotless bride out of his love for us, out of his delight in us. All things end in a feast, they end in laughter. And this morning, as you come to this meal, to the table that we're taking together, we are practicing in a little tiny way this feast. We're remembering that we are going, we are on our way to a wedding feast that Jesus has prepared, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So as you come this morning in a new way, again this week, put your whole hope not in self-purification, not in the water of your own cleansing, but in your Bridegroom the one who delights in you, who offers you joy. Put your whole hope in the bridegroom who in his death and resurrection removes all our shame and calls us his beloved. Put your hope in the joy giver. Come to the meal of the wedding feast of the Lamb, of the joy giver and receive what he longs to give you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.